Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The artist Harry Underwood creates a dream world of retro figures engaging in seemingly joyful, nostalgic activities, yet tinged with melancholy at times. His exhibition, Outdoor Worship is on view at Inman Park's Wadi Gallery. And later this hour, the artist joins City Light senior producer Kim Drobes to discuss his recent work. First, in 1961, 13 brave activists set out on a Greyhound bus from Washington, D.C. to New Orleans. Their demonstration of civil disobedience eventually drew hundreds of participants and national attention. The group known as the Freedom Riders is the focus of Mike Wiley's solo play, Breach of Peace. He'll perform the show at Lawrenceville Arts Center on Friday, October 14th. Mike Wiley joins us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you so very much for having me. Please tell us about the origin and mission of the Freedom Riders. The origin and the mission of the Freedom Riders came out of... Uh, originally, originally, it came out of the late 40s and core of the Congress of Racial Equality's desire to integrate the travel systems throughout the South, particularly the Southeast. That was originally called the Journey of Reconciliation. However, in the summer of 1948, the original Freedom Riders, that is to say, several of the African-American men were arrested in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and actually placed on a chain gang for some weeks for their attempts at integrating the travel systems, the bus systems, and so on in the area. So that 
put a stop to those original freedom rides, that is the journey of reconciliation. And so in 1960, uh, late 1960 and early 1961, CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, and James Farmer, the leader of CORE, wanted to do it again. They wanted to try it again. They thought time was right to do it, especially after the Greensboro sit-in had sparked a sit-in, a new sit-in movement across the country. So you had the Greensboro sit-ins, and then you had the sit-ins in Nashville from those Fisk University students, Diane Nash and uh, John Lewis and so on. And so you had this new sit-in movement burgeoning across the country. And James Farmer wanted to be a part of that. He wanted to do it on buses. He wanted to change the course of history by integrating the bus and train systems uh, across the country. And so that's where the idea came from. So they put out a call to students, student activists, who wanted to be a part of, of this because they wanted to be particularly careful with the individuals that they chose to be on this on this freedom ride. And so, like I said, John Lewis, uh, as well as a handful of other folks were a part of those original 13 freedom riders that traveled from Washington, DC, or attempted to travel from Washington, DC, down to New Orleans in 1961. That was the idea. The idea was to leave D.C. and arrive in New Orleans while testing the segregation laws. And I use laws in quotations because many of these places didn't really have laws. It was just custom. Uh, but those customs were upheld by police departments. And so these individuals rode into the Deep South, and it was a mixed Christians, agnostics, Jews, blacks, whites, men, women, students, and adults uh, all rode in to the Deep South, and the idea was that they were going to make it, and they knew that there was going to be trouble along the way, but they got a lot more trouble than, than, they, than they realized that they were going to get. Uh, there was physical violence along the way, uh, and in fact, they were bombed. The bus was bombed in Anniston, Alabama, and then down the road a little further in Birmingham, as well as Montgomery, riders were attacked and beaten. In Montgomery, they were attacked and beaten, and that's where they thought they were going to have to stop. They thought they were going to have to make Montgomery the last place because of how brutally they were beaten. The, the State Department got involved, or the Justice Department rather, got involved. Bobby Kennedy sent uh, uh, members of the military, that is the National Guard, to protect them, which the Alabama governor was not really uh, fond of, but he went along with it. Eventually, they made it to Jackson, Mississippi, uh, because the students, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee students that became uh, an essential part of the rides, pushed for it to move on. They got to Jackson, and the Jackson police just started arresting all of them. They arrested all of them and threw them into Parchman Penitentiary. So the Freedom Rides made it as far as Jackson, Mississippi, and uh, that became ground zero, in a sense, for the Freedom Rides. Everyone decided uh, around the country, whites and blacks, students, adults, decided, okay, well, this is where we're going. We're going to take a bus into Jackson, and we're going to be apart, and we're going to get arrested, and uh, that's going to be our Freedom Ride. So hundreds of students did it over the course of a summer. Mike, this is 
a wealth of historical information. I'm wondering how you provide this historical information within the context of your one-man show. Can you give us an idea of how you structure the show? Sure. Well, first, I got to tell you a story of how it became a one-person play. And it started off as an ensemble play called The Parchment Hour. A good friend of mine is a freedom rider, and I had no idea it was a freedom rider. And one day we were sitting out on his porch, and he was talking about his musical background, and then he said, well, when I was in jail in Mississippi, and I thought, wait, 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 say that again? <laughs> and he went into the story of the Freedom Rides. And at the time, I was about to be a visiting professor at Duke University, and I needed something that my students could grab hold to and really bite into as a piece that they could write about, research, all of those things. And it became the Freedom Rides of 1961. And at that time, it was 2010, so it was 2010. So it was about to be the 50th anniversary of the Freedom Rides. And at that point, I had about four or five solo plays that I was touring around the country. And so when I wrote this ensemble play with about 16 or 17 actors called The Parchment Hour about the Freedom Rides and premiered it, a local fan came up to me in the Whole Foods one day and she said, you know, I went to see, I went to see that Freedom Riders <laughs> play the other night, you know, The Parchment Hour, and you weren't on stage. And I said, <laughs> I, I, I know I wasn't on stage. And, and I immediately thought that she didn't like it because it sounded like that's what she was saying. So I said, I'm sorry that I wasn't on stage. And that's what you were looking for. And she goes, oh, no, 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 no. It was wonderful because it was a bunch of people doing what you do. And <laughs> I thought, well, that's a really great compliment. And, and the reason I tell that story is because as the years progressed, a 17-person cast is a little hard to travel around the country, and I knew what my abilities were, and so I whittled it down into a solo play, into a one-person piece that really focuses on the journey, that is the journey from Washington, D.C. to Jackson, Mississippi, and what happens to them along the way, and a small handful of those individual riders like John Lewis. Starting with John Lewis, in 1961, I was 21 years old, a few pounds lighter, had all of my hair. John Lewis, 21, student. We took a sit-in movement that was happening on college campuses out into the populace. We were committed to this idea of the beloved community, the redeemed America. The plan, however, was simplicity itself. Joan Mulholland, 19, student. In any sane, even half-civilized society, it would have been completely innocuous, hardly worth a second thought. So what I do is I play multiple characters throughout the piece and tell you the story of not just the ride into Mississippi, but the lives of these individuals and how they decided to come on the ride and what their thoughts were when they were going into some of the most dangerous situations, such as when they were when they were riding into Birmingham or when they were riding into Montgomery and how it felt 
from their own words. These are interviews that have been done over the years of these individuals and how it felt to look out and see this mob ready to tear them apart, whites and blacks um, sitting on that bus, uh, looking out and seeing this these white mobs ready to 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 beat them over the heads with with shovels and, mm. and baseball bats and things of that nature. So rather than use historic voiceovers, you inhabit these characters. Yes. And I had a look at footage of you performing another piece, Big Night In, where you assume several different character voices in order to present their quotes, almost as if they are giving interviews in a documentary. Mm -hmm. Mike, it's amazing to watch you switch roles so nimbly and to hear that this technique is something you use in Breach of Peace as well. How do you immerse yourself in those voices in order to inhabit them? It's the research that goes into finding as many recordings or speaking to these folks individually, if I can. Folks like Joan Mulholland, who is a character and a true life a civil rights hero, and a friend, I consider her a great friend, but she's one of those individuals that, you know, uh, you hear people say, yeah, so-and-so marched with King. Well, yep, she not only marched with King, but she was in sit-ins in Jackson, Mississippi. She put her body on the line, and to have the opportunity and the honor, really, of portraying her on stage are the kinds of moments that I that I pray for, that I look for, that I research for. And sometimes there are individuals that I become that there aren't recordings or film of their voices, which you know, I'm an actor. It's my job to be able to make up those voices. But in order to do that, that also takes an amount of research because I need to know, you know what the background of that true life person was. That is to say, well, you know, where did they live? Where did they come from? What part of the country did they come from? Where did they spend most of their childhood? These are the kinds of questions you have to ask yourself so that you get the voice right, so that you get the dialect right. These are things that I heavily researched so that I'm able to then call these pieces documentary theater. And so that's why I, I concentrate on the what these folks are, are like physically, you know, what John Lewis was like physically, what, what was his body like? How did he hold his hands? How did he hold his voice? And what part of his diaphragm did he speak from? And now here, performing this show in Atlanta, you know, he was our beloved congressman, hero. I mean, truly, mm -hmm. truly a man of heroism in everything he did. Do you ever feel intimidated or daunted by stepping into the voice of someone who is so well known? I have to honestly say no. And the reason I say that is no sense of, of ego 
of ability, of any of those things, I do my utmost best, my utmost best to try and look at the world in the way that they saw the world so often, and that is that they were ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And if I can walk on stage and embody an ordinary person that just happened to do extraordinary things, I'm doing my job. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. My guest is Mike Wiley. His one-man show, Breach of Peace, The Freedom Riders of 1961, is on stage at Lawrenceville Arts Center this Friday. Who are some of the other memorable individuals whose stories you bring out in Breach of Peace? Uh, Stokely Carmichael uh, or Kwame Ture speaks often in the piece and is a major character speaking from his philosophy. Because if you look at it, look at the history of it, John Lewis and Stokely Carmichael, though they were friends on and off, some might have called them frenemies at times, <laughs> because Stokely and, and John just veered in different directions when it came to the movement. And some of that started in Parchment Penitentiary when they were jailed there for being on the Freedom Rides. John Lewis saw it as a movement, while Stokely questioned whether it was just a moment in a movement. And so to portray both of them on stage at the same time, at times saying different things and really saying them in the same way at, uh, at times is, again, an and, and honor. I also played James Farmer. You know, I mentioned James Farmer earlier. James Farmer was, you know, a contemporary of Dr. Martin Luther King. Some might say he actually was around before King. He would say himself that he was, he had started a movement before Dr. King came along. You know, if you read his autobiography, Lay Bare My Heart, he says himself that and, and it comes out a little bit in the play, not a lot, but it comes out in a little bit in the play that he was a little bit jealous of the fame that uh, Dr. King garnered. And he says, you know, he says that he had sown the seeds, and grown the grapes, and Dr. King came along <laughs> and drank the wine. <laughs> so that, oh. that's... that's that was his, that was how he saw Dr. King. He saw Dr. King as, as someone who had uh, clearly eventually did more than he had done. But early on, he saw him as somewhat competition. So I, you know, I lean into that a little bit, a little bit in the, in the play. And then there, I play a number of uh, the women that were on the, the movement. Like I mentioned, you know, Joan Mulholland, Diane Nash, several of the other uh, folks that, uh, of the other women that were involved on that journey. Hmm. Breach of Peace is presented along with a study guide, and you offer a conversation with the audience after the show. How does this 
production draw an audience deeper into this moment of history? Well, I will tell you a little secret that I don't really typically reveal before a performance. And that is that in addition to direct address, that, that is to say, speaking directly to the audience as the characters and asking them to come along on this journey with me, not literally, but figuratively coming along on this journey. There are a number of times where I actually ask audience members to join me on stage. And a large part of that is because I want people to feel like they, you know, they're walking in the shoes of these individuals. I want people to feel like that they have a stake in the outcome of this history. Because what it does by the end is it really does give them an understanding, a deeper understanding, perhaps maybe not a complete understanding, obviously, but a deeper understanding of what it felt like to march for your freedoms, to sit in for your freedoms, to be jailed you know, for your freedoms. It gives you somewhat a sense of that by using the audience in that way. And to risk your life in mm -hmm. peaceful demonstration. Indeed. I read that you also present a student version of Breach of Peace. What is different in that? student-oriented show? The language. The, just, it, it really is just the, the, the language that is a little bit different in a student performance. So what age students is that geared toward? Oh, that goes third grade and up. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> I say not your college students. Yeah, well, college students are welcome to the student performances, certainly. But in my you know, evening performances, the language is a little bit, it's documentary. So it's really, it's not language that is, um, that is made up or language that is overtly wrong for the time period, I guess I, I will say. Just in the student version, I guess the simple thing to say is in the student version of it, the language is, is more tame. And in the evening performances, the language is more documentary, you know, I'm not going to curtail the language that Bull Connor used. I portray Bull Connor in this piece, Bull Connor being the police chief in Birmingham, Alabama, notorious police commissioner is what he was. And, and the language that he uses, you know, he refers to African-Americans as, as animals at times. And so therefore, I want to use the language that he used so people understand the depth of, uh, of that anger, the depth of that ignorance. Uh, I want people to understand that. And so therefore, I don't change the language. Yeah, I noticed the play's online materials include a thoughtfully worded content advisory. How do you navigate the thorns inherent to presenting American history truthfully. I honestly use a degree of humor. And so anyone that comes to see a piece of mine 
whether it's it's this this breach of peace or I do a play about Emmett Till, which I've done in your area as well. I try and sprinkle a little bit of of humor throughout each piece so that the steam that builds up inherently in a piece that is so charged gets let out little by little over the course of a performance. So we have moments where we are angry. We have moments where we are upset or sad or in tears, but not long after that or immediately after that, there is a moment of levity. There is a moment where we can laugh at ourselves, that we can laugh at being human beings, that we can laugh at being scared in some of the most scary situations. And so therefore, it lightens the load that we carry. And the language, the hate language, do you include the hateful words many of us won't utter? Uh, yeah, in the evening performances, I absolutely do. Because there's something about helping folks to understand how those words were used as weapons against us, against these individuals, how those words are still used as weapons today. And those individuals that choose to use those words in your willy nilly, you know, lyric to a song kind of way, they're handling a weapon. And, and in some ways, and at some times, those weapons are being used irresponsibly. And so bringing it back to the historical use, the documented use of those words, I think calls attention to why they were used and how they were used. And it's necessary to do that. Because if I don't do that, if I whitewash the play or the history as it were, then there are a number of people that will walk away and not understand why those time periods were so bad. Actor Mike Wiley wrote and appears in the one-man show Breach of Peace, The Freedom Riders of 1961. The play is on stage at Lawrenceville Art Center this Friday, October 14th. And more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, artist and professor Tristan L. Haddad discusses his permanent installation at Georgia Tech, the Crossland Chroma Project. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. 
That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. A new installation promoting art and safety is on permanent display at the Crossland Tower on the campus of Georgia Tech. Tristan Alhadad, a professor in Georgia Tech School of Architecture and owner of Formation Studio, was commissioned to create the Crossland Chroma Project. The installation surrounding the terraces on the seventh floor of Crossland was designed for aesthetic and safety reasons. Professor Al-Haddad joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Glad to be here. You've been a faculty member at Georgia Tech for 16 years in that renowned architecture school. When creating sculptures, installations, or landscape pieces, what's the balance between artist and engineer for an architect? You know, it, it's, a, it's an excellent question. I, I would say my entire life, my entire career has been a balance between what I would call the conceptual and the technical. And so often we find those two camps not really aligned and, and sometimes not even in dialogue. And mm. so with all of my work, you know, we try to, uh, and when I say we, I mean the royal we, my studio, my team, uh, all the people that contribute to the work. That's another really important part of how we work because we produce all of our own work for the most part in-house. But we, we try to, to constantly have the conceptual and the technical in dialogue informing each other because at the end of the day, ideas without materiality are just ideas. And that's okay too. But the way in which we work and, and what we're really after is the material expression, the material actual, actualization of the idea. And so that requires this constant sort of dialogue between the conceptual ideas, the aesthetic intent, the perceptual intent, and the technical realities of, of making, of the material world, of physics, of wind, of gravity, of all of these things. So yeah, it's, it's really about a constant kind of dialogue and feedback loop between conceptual intent, aspirations, and material reality. And material is very important uh, to the practice as well. Trying to tease out ideas directly from materials is something that we're, we're oftentimes uh, trying to do. Sure. So what was the inspiration for the art component of this project? Yeah, so just to, to maybe step back for one second, you know, the way that I describe the, the piece, uh, Crossland Chroma, I describe it as the love child of uh, public art and public safety. The, the art component, I would say it's twofold. On the one hand, the piece is meant to really be a, a perceptual piece 
an abstract perceptual piece meant to be experienced, meant, meant to be felt. It's meant to bring uh, a kind of playful delight to the campus. And, you know, I love the campus and I think the campus is continuing to be really one of the outstanding campuses in the United States of higher education. But sometimes it can be a little bit conservative, frankly, and, you know, especially if you look at the history of the campus. And so the piece was meant to really bring this kind of playful delight and bodily experience to being on the terraces and feeling the way in which the light and the views are constantly shifting. That's kind of the, the experiential piece. And then I would say conceptually, what the piece is meant to do, and, and I should describe the piece a little bit before before describing its, its meaning. Um, so the piece is made out of 192, what would be called dichroic polycarbonate fins that are twisting 90 degrees from the bottom to the top. And so what that does is that, that dichroic material takes the white light from, or let's say the kind of pure light from the, the sun and breaks it into a chromatic spectrum, right? Mm. And so conceptually, what the piece is doing is it's talking about how do we have an incredible range of diverse ideas coming from the idea of, of the library as the body of knowledge, right? So if light is the body of knowledge, then this spectral experience is really the diversity of ideas that is captured within the library. And beyond that, the, the university itself, that we have so much diverse thinking, so much diverse uh, student population and faculty population, that it really becomes a representation of that diversity in the library and the, the university at large. And what about this important safety function? How, how does it serve as a safety barrier for Crossland Tower? The piece is on the seventh floor of the Crossland Tower, which is the part of the, the library, the central library at Georgia Tech. And it's about 100 feet above the ground. So obviously there are safety issues if people can get to the edge. And so the way in which it works, it, it actually has to work as a code compliant guardrail, right? So there were safety codes that we had to comply with, et cetera, et cetera. So it's quite difficult to make a sculpture, which is complying with all of these safety codes and also becoming a kind of pure experience. So what it does is at the bottom, these dichroic fins, these dichroic polycarbonate fins are in line and they create a kind of continuous plane up until about 42 inches above the finished floor of the terraces. And so that's a code requirement. And once it goes past that 42 inches, the, the fins start to rotate and twist 90 degrees. So by the time they get to the top, they're perpendicular. And what that does, not only does it create this kind of spectral range that we get as the light passes through these little nanotechnology prisms that you can't really see, right? The, there's no pigment in the fins at all. It's all, it's all basically nanotechnology, you know, tiny little prisms, if you will. Things. So what happens is at the bottom, it's a continuous plane and the fins twist 90 degrees to open up to really become almost to kind of dissolve visually and to allow for the view back to Midtown because it's really a spectacular view of Midtown and downtown and then also West Atlanta. So you get this uh, kind of continuous surface at the bottom twisting kind of opening up the apertures to, to allow that view back out to the city. When you were approached to spearhead the project, how did it feel to know that your creation would be a permanent part of Georgia Tech? 
Yeah, well, it's kind of a little maybe daunting, if you will. Um, <laughs> I have been at Georgia Tech since 1996, first as a student and then as a faculty member. So I've been there a very long time. I'm very intimate with the campus. I've seen the campus transform over the last 25 years, the last quarter century. And especially that building, the library, which I have a very long and kind of intimate relationship with, and especially Crossland Tower, which used to be the book stacks. And so I remember, you know, many, many years ago, kind of roaming through the book stacks, looking through, you know, looking for this book or that book, or even just finding the book randomly, right, which is really the pleasure of walking through the book stacks. And that's all gone away now. You know, the library as a, as a typology has transformed. There aren't really that many books in the library anymore. Really, the library is a, a place to share thoughts, share ideas. And again, that goes back to the idea of this diverse range of ideas uh, and this diverse range of knowledge that Cross and Chroma is kind of expressing. But it's been really interesting to see the campus transform over the years and now to be part of that and to have a permanent piece uh, especially such a, a kind of vibrant, prominent piece at the top of the library, which sits, you know, kind of adjacent to Tech Tower and, and all of that. It's it's really very satisfying. And uh, it's been a very fun project. Working with the team, too, at Georgia Tech has been great. You know, they, they had a, a vision as well. And uh, they had a lot of ambition and I would say courage to take on such a project, which, you know, wouldn't always be the case. But I think Dean Sharp, who's dean of libraries, was incredibly supportive uh, and then all of the, the folks at facilities were super supportive of the project. Tristan Al-Haddad, a Georgia Tech professor in the School of Architecture and owner of Formation Studio. You can see his permanent installation, the Crossland Chroma Project, around the terraces on the seventh floor of Crossland Tower at Georgia Tech. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. Coming up, City Lights senior producer Kim Drobes catches up with Tennessee folk artist Harry Underwood. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Although the work of artist Harry Underwood is often labeled folk art or outsider art, that description really just taps the surface. Underwood creates a dream world of retro figures engaging in seemingly joyful, nostalgic activities, yet often tinged with sadness. His exhibition, Outdoor Worship, is on view at Inman Park's Wadi Gallery, and the artist recently joined City Light senior producer Kim Drobes via Zoom to discuss his latest work. My understanding is that you grew up in Homestead, Florida, and that you used to make your living painting houses before you began laying paint on canvases. What inspired you to pick up that smallest paintbrush for the first time? Oh, I've been thinking, I had been thinking about it for a long, long time before I did that. 
I wanted to start painting to give uh, life a better meaning, really. And um, so for a long time, I didn't know what I was going to paint about. And I had to think that over and consider it. Uh, so everything's been done so so often. So I, I looked back at my own history to to decide. What was the very first piece that you painted? The first thing I did uh, was with watercolors. And I was uh, just painting a bicycle that I had. Uh, not even considering painting people. And yet that's where you landed and where you are most well known now is for these stenciled figures that they remind me a lot of vintage postcards. Where did you get your original inspiration for the figures? I have looked at a lot of postcards and old magazines. Um, I think maybe the the way that my characters are posed reflect that, uh, sort of like old advertising where... Um, there isn't a whole lot going on activity-wise, and the people are just in a scene that's a very beautiful scene. When you first started painting after you did that first watercolor of the bicycle, how did you go about finding your artistic voice and focusing on people? I had been reading an awful lot in my early 20s. I was really into reading, and uh, I didn't really have the education to, to become a writer, I didn't think, so... Uh, Looking at other folk art, I noticed that people wrote on their paintings and uh, that that would be a good way to incorporate writing and, and pictures, put it all together. Yep. So you do often incorporate penciled paragraphs onto your work. It's almost like when you're viewing one of your pieces that I feel like personally, like I'm having a small conversation with you. Are there particular things that you're trying to articulate when you're writing on your work? I am. I do a lot of my own thinking there. So it's kind of like having a conversation with myself. It can be very personal. I can think about reasons for things and answers to problems. I've always tried to think of a really good line that, uh, you know, if some people could hear the right thing, maybe it would, would cure something. That's a very sweet thought. I feel like I might have buried the lead a bit in your point A to point B story. I had heard that you used to sell your work at an antique mall in Tennessee. And then at some point, an English art dealer noticed your talent and asked to exhibit your work at the Outsider Art Fair in New York. Uh, that, that's somewhat the truth. I, uh, I had an art dealer in uh, Chicago passed me on to an art dealer in Ohio and then I got in touch with an English art dealer who took my work to the Outsider Art Fair. And I've been doing that for a lot of years now. The Outsider Art Fair particularly? Yeah, yeah. My my artwork had been there for a very long time, and I, I've been there in person twice. Do you but, consider uh, yourself an outsider artist? That's where I fit, I think, uh, you know, because of the way I, I came into this. I had drawing experience and ability as a kid, you know, like everybody else, but I, I never was taught that. My my dad can draw really well. Mm. I can't draw as good as him. So we kind of competed or I tried to compete. And um, But when it came time to express myself, I, I re realized that uh, there's more to it than uh, skill. And I developed these other ways to go about it. Yeah, so you've developed very unique processes. Would you mind elaborating on the stencils and how they get incorporated into your work? I think I started doing it originally just because I wanted to have a backup of things if I made a mistake or if I didn't like something. And uh, 
that does happen a lot. Like right now I'm, I'm reworking an older painting from a few years ago, trying to, to make it more pleasing. It kind of, it didn't have the uh, bright colors that I, I really do like to use. I've, I've heard the word composite used a lot with um, people that do collage work. Mm -hmm. And um, so instead of taking just an ordinary photograph and, and imitating that or using it, you can cut it all apart and you can make new human bodies out of uh, several parts and you can create a whole cityscape that way too. But I've, I have used my own photographs. There was a really good one I took once of Birmingham, Alabama, the skyline there. I used it several times and uh, it worked really well. That's so cool. So once you cut a stencil, you incorporate it into multiple pieces? I can, yeah. It's like... Uh, I always wanted to, to think of it as like having a formula where you needed a building and you need some plants and you need people and you can interchange the things. And when you're working with words too, uh, you can interchange that. You could uh, replace all the words on a painting and say a whole different thing about it. Uh, so it's, there's so much flexibility in doing it this way. Do you think that there's an overall theme that runs through your work? Yeah, I, I do. How can I explain that? It's um, like we mentioned how I came from Florida. So, you know, if you grow up in Florida, you're going to go into the school or go into work life and um, see people around you that are there enjoying their vacation. So you're working and living in a place where people are vacationing and you're feeling different than that. So but uh, I picked up on that and making paintings about that. I, I've learned to enjoy those kind of ideas. That's really interesting. So the idea of growing up in a place where people are constantly on holiday around you, are your pictures as the outsider looking in? They could be, I suppose. Yeah. L later now, I'm 53. I've learned to, to get more free time. I used to work all the time on this and, uh, so I can take vacations and I do things You're here at the studio. I can just go for walks and think a pic picture over. You know, I used to do that a lot. I still do. I used to think all the time on these walks around here about uh, the problems with the painting and how to fix them. And uh, now I use my walks more to uh, relax and to clear my head. And when I come back to work, it's easier. Yeah, it sounds yeah. like you've developed a, a better balance in your head about it. Yeah, yeah, I'm less nervous about it. It's it's really become comfortable for me. That's wonderful to hear. That's just wonderful to hear. So I have to ask you, growing up in Homestead, did you spend time visiting Coral Castle when you were younger? <laughs> I'm glad you asked that. No, I, I've driven past it my whole life. I never went inside the place. Um, I used to see it uh, going to school every day, and you could see the tops of it, and we didn't live very far from there. I always thought about it. My dad uh, knew the man. Oh, really? Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. But uh, And then the other day, I saw it in a really old movie they had filmed there called uh, Nude on the Moon. An old movie has that in the backdrop. Oh, so. that's so cool. For the unfamiliar, Coral Castle is this amazing sculpture garden built by one man, Edward Leeds Scallion. I believe it took him maybe 25 years to build. 
It is said that he built it completely by himself out of over a thousand tons of rock. It's a very mysterious accomplishment and a very cool place to go check out if you're ever in South Florida. It is, you know, and he was a self-taught folk artist doing that. Um, Really, I grew up more, uh, you know, that was where we lived and we lived around farms out there and I had relatives that were farmers. And as a teenager, I got interested in the the Art Deco architecture world of uh, Miami Beach. Mm. So that was a big, really inspired me to this day. Yeah, well, that is very obvious in your work. And it's definitely one of the things that draws me in as well. Your newest exhibition, Outdoor Worship, which is being held at Wadi. I read that it was important to you to incorporate more plants into this one. And it made me start looking back at your older work. And yeah, there is so much more greenery going on in this exhibition. What inspired all the plants to come to life? Yeah, well, maybe if you look at my art, you can see that I've got a sense of humor. And so when I was doing the early stuff, uh, I didn't know how to really do a, a very good plant or a palm tree. So I would do these sort of suggestions with the paint that were really, really minimal. And and uh, recently I've just gotten more complex about that. I've tried to make it more real. And uh, I've done the tops of these pine trees that are very pointy. And I was always really good at doing tropical sort of palmettos and things like that, cactuses. And now I've, I've kind of just made up my own plants at the moment that look a little bit like broccoli <laughs> stems. Indeed. But, but I, I really have, I have a lot of laughs when I, I do some of these things. That's fantastic. Would you mind describing your title piece, Outdoor Worship? Uh, well, Outdoor Worship, yeah, I did that one a few years ago, and it's in this show. Uh, it was, uh, I don't recall what the small writing is about on the picture. I think that's the one with just one figure in it. And I I feel like people enjoy paintings that have lots of characters going on in them, but I got got away with this one and put just one person sort of representing myself. And he's uh, planted very serenely in the forest down in Florida um, with all of these wild animals walking around him that could be dangerous. And there's humor in that too. Absolutely. He seems very at one with his situation, regardless of any danger there. I had questions uh, from somebody the other day about the clouds that appear in the picture and uh, that I made them sort of to look like um, stage scenery, as though this was a theatrical thing and that these could be suspended on wires from the sky. Uh, They do look that way, if you notice. Yeah, I actually was having a hard time wrapping my head around them, but I see exactly what you're talking about. I encourage those who haven't seen the work to go to our website, then you'll be able to get a visual on what we're talking about. I tried to zoom in on the writing on this one particularly and couldn't get a grasp on it, but you were saying you also don't quite recall what you put there. I write so many things on these pictures and it all changes all the time. Uh, so I do lose track and I don't, it's sort of just done to get the, the words out and not to reflect on it 
myself. But the reason you can't you can't see the pictures very well is because of my old old camera that I used. <laughs> well, that's just more encouragement to go see them in person. True. Can you tell me a little bit about your partnership with the owner of Wadi Gallery and how you guys met? Yeah, I can. Um, you know, for years, I actually thought uh, that Atlanta would be a good place to show art, but I didn't know anybody. And um, this man from England, uh, Cosmo Vinyl, was acquainted with Sean, Sean Vinson in Atlanta and told him about my artwork. That's very cool. And Sean displayed you in his previous gallery. Yeah, I had a show at a different trains gallery in Decatur. I think that was 2018. Well, it seems like a great time to welcome you back to Atlanta. Thank you very much. Outsider artist Harry Underwood speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes. Underwood's exhibition, Outdoor Worship, is on view at the Wadi Gallery in Inman Park through October 29th. And more information is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m. we'll hear from... The filmmaker and rapper Sensei Chop, his new documentary, Thirst Trap, is about the Atlanta water boys. Plus, Rodan in the United States confronting the modern. The new exhibition begins next week at the High Museum of Art. City Light senior producer is Kim Troves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.